0: Um, welcome, everyone. My name is Ryan. I'm pastor here at City Beautiful Church. Just quick raise a hand if this is your first Sunday with us. Oh, my goodness. Fantastic. Wow. Welcome. Um, welcome, everyone. You are, uh, you're, you're coming in at the very end of a series that we've been doing for about three or four months now called Colony. In our Colony series up until now, we've been exploring this idea. What does it mean to be the people of God in the 21st century? What does it mean for us to be honest with the way that the world is and to seek to be God's faithful presence and to meet the demands of our modern culture um, with grace and with truth? And so tonight, we're going to be kind of summing that up. Is that a little ringy? Is there something I can do to... Okay. Okay. Um, So we're going to be kind of culminating our series of Colony um, with worship. Um, Next week especially, we're going to have a night of worship, so I highly encourage you to come to that. And we're just going to be celebrating who God is and who Jesus is and all of the things um, that he's revealed to us in this season. So over the past several weeks, I've been asking myself this question as we've been going through this series. uh, Why Jesus? You know, so much of what we've talked about in this series um, is about social justice. It's about making a difference. It's about affecting the people around us. And, and, you know, those are all good things to talk about. But ultimately, where do we find Jesus in that picture of who we're called to be? Isn't it enough just to be good people? Isn't it enough just to try to make a difference with a few precious years that we have? And it's been so beautiful to me to, to kind of come back to that really core question. Why, why is Jesus so important, not only to me personally, but to us as a whole? And that's what I want us to really focus on tonight, that Jesus is central to everything that we are as Christians and that we can't ever, ever, ever overemphasize that. So I'm gonna pray and we're gonna continue on. If you pray with me, please. Um, Heavenly Father, we testify to your truth Uh, In this place tonight, we testify to your presence. God, that you are here with us and you're also for us. Lord, we don't want to move any forward uh, tonight without being fully open before you, ready to receive that truth, ready to receive that goodness, Lord. Would you open our eyes to see you move in us and around us? Would you open our ears to hear your voice tonight? Would you open our hearts to receive you more gladly than when we came in here uh, at first? And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so, what I want us to talk about tonight is Jesus. My sermon tonight is entitled Jesus all for Jesus. I want us to talk about who Jesus really is. I want us to talk about why Jesus matters to everything that we're doing. And I want us to talk about what our response to him is going to be. And so this is kind of my first premise as we're talking about who Jesus is. Jesus is the beginning and end of God's story. Jesus is the beginning and the end. In scripture, it talks about the alpha and the omega, the aleph and the tav in Hebrew, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And even when I was framing this question as I'm like digging through this in prayer and saying, okay, why Jesus? There was so many places I can go. Do I wanna dive deep into the gospels and talk about um, God made man? You know, like going through Matthew, Mark, and Luke and seeing kind of the divine punchline is that Jesus has been God this whole time. Do I want to go to John and start with Jesus as the word of God made flesh? Do we want to go into the writings of Paul and see how he speaks of the Christ and that God is gathering all of us up together in the Christ? Do I want to go to Hebrews and talk about Jesus as the high priest and the sacrifice and the temple all wrapped up into one? And as I was praying about it, I decided that I wanted to to bring myself just to the book of Revelation and to speak about that. So I want to very briefly just talk about Revelation and we're going to step into looking at how Jesus is the beginning and the end of God's story. Uh, Revelation is also called uh, the apocalypse. Now in our modern culture, the word apocalypse carries very negative connotations, doesn't it? Whenever we hear apocalypse, we think death and destruction and everything's being absolutely obliterated. But it's actually the first word in the book of Revelation. And apocalypse literally means to reveal, to make known, to unveil truth. And so this book is not about death and destruction and the end of all things. But it's actually about revelation of who God really is and what God's really like. And it helps me to think about revelation like this. It's a picture of the heavenly realities of earthly realities, it's heavenly impressions of earthly realities. And a lot of times we can get so tripped up in, the, in these amazing um, passages that we're reading. You know, so many of us have perhaps have never even really dug into Revelation because it's so intimidating. And for, for others of us, we've heard some theologies that maybe don't really do its service and kind of put the book of Revelation in a place that it was never really intended for. But I, I want to kind of posit that the apocalyptic uh, scriptures are intended to be like a beautiful work of art, like a play or a, a surrealist painting. Has everybody ever been to the, the Dali Museum on St. Pete? Okay. There, there are certain kinds of questions that you can come into a play or a painting with that actually contribute to you experiencing it, allowing the work of art to kind of wash over you and to give you this impression of what the artist's intent really was. And then there's a certain kinds of questions and attitude that pick apart the play or the painting or whatever it is and kind of analyze it in ways that it was never really intended for that lead you to not really experience the work at all. And I think that Revelation works in that same way. It's an impression. It's something that's supposed to wash over us and give us this profound experience of what God is like and what he's doing. And the message that we can kind of find in Revelation summed up is this, basically. Are you loyal to the kingdom of the Lamb or to the empire? Are you loyal to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, or the empire? And I think when we look at it through those lenses then the book of Revelation may actually be one of the most pertinent books in the Bible for us. And I think it so beautifully sums up what we're talking about in this colony series. So we're going to look at kind of three stories within Revelation, these three scenes that really speak into what I want us to focus on tonight, that Jesus is the beginning and end of God's story. So turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 8. John writes this, beginning in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theotira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And yes, I practiced those this week, or else I was just going to blow right through them and be like, Sanford, and Daytona, and all of these places. So here, even in the beginning of the letter, we find that this is written by a pastor named John. We're not exactly sure who he is. And he's writing to seven churches that he has been um, in charge of that are found throughout southern Turkey, okay? And so what John is writing, even from that line in in verse 8, that I am the Alpha and the Omega who was and is and is to come, John is writing to his churches that he's in charge of, speaking to them of things that have just happened things that are happening in their world at right at that very moment, and things that were just about to happen to them. These are churches that are struggling with being persecuted, not only by the Jews, but this increasing persecution by the Roman Empire. And so John is writing to them in periods of trial and tribulation to encourage them of what God is doing in the heavenly perspective to help define what's going on in the earthly perspective. So we continue on. He hears... He's in the spirit, and he hears behind him this loud voice like a trumpet. And so I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Paul he- or, sorry, John hears this voice, and he turns, and he has this powerful image of Jesus. It says, one that comes like the Son of Man. He's bringing up this language from Daniel chapter seven, another piece of apocalyptic literature. And what does he mean by one coming like the son of man or it says the son of God, how do we reconcile those? He's saying here comes God with flesh on. Here comes God incarnate, the divine invested and placed within a body, the God who is spirit and soil met together To reconcile all things into himself. You see, practically every single line in the book of Revelation carries with it some hint to a prior writing or a prior story or a prior passage of scripture. And so it's important that we recognize, as we're going through it, all of these different images that that the vision that John is having is gathering up the entire story of God and kind of recapitulating it. It's a fancy theological word that means to tell the story all over again from a new perspective. And it's helpful to think of it almost like a political satire. If you've seen cartoons recently, and if it has an elephant in it, the elephant signifies what? And a a donkey said... (laughs) I already gave it up, but... A donkey symbolizes what? So for us, it's very apparent if we were to see a cartoon in, this, in, the, um, in the newspaper and it had those images, we automatically understand what's being talked about and what's being poked fun of. But you see, when we're reading something from 2,000 years ago, it can be a little bit harder for us to receive those images. But that's essentially what we're looking at, that beautiful surrealist painting that has all of these little hints that come from the older scriptures. And so Paul has this image, sorry, John, good grief, Lord, come. (laughs) I, I just, I love this book so much, and I really want us to be able to do it well, to do it service. So John has this amazing image of Jesus Christ, who comes like one who is the Son of Man, and he speaks with authority, and he has this sword coming out of his mouth, and he's blazing white, and his hair is like wool, and he shines all over. It's such a powerful image of Jesus, one that we don't often run into, certainly not necessarily in the Gospels. And I think it really speaks something beautiful to us when we consider that this is about the heavenly impressions of earthly realities. Because as you and I have grown to know Jesus over, the, over our lives in faithfulness to him, or perhaps you have yet even to meet Jesus... We kind of collect these different images and ideas of him. Some, for some of us, we're very familiar with Jesus as something of a spiritual teacher or a guru. For some of us, Jesus is an example for us to follow. Uh, he came to show us what it means to be fully human. For some of us, we're very familiar with Jesus as a friend. We love that image of Jesus as friend. For some of us, it's Jesus as our lover. We really desire that image. But then we're confronted with something like this from Revelation 1, where his eyes are like blazing fire and there's a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, and when he speaks, the entire earth shakes, and we don't quite know what to do with it. You know, being the son uh, of a pastor, I was always humiliated in sermons growing up because I think that's what they do, and I have incredible pity on my children if and when they ever appear in this mortal coil. But my father would always tell this story that when I was about four years old, I'd come to him and I'd say, "Jesus, is, dad, is, is or Dad, is Jesus kind of like Superman? And that was my best understanding at four years old of what Jesus was like. And so my dad would say, well, yes, he's kind of like Superman. There are some analogies there. And that was the thing that I grasped onto when I was a little child. And as I grew in understanding of who Jesus was, not just from scripture, but from experience of him revealing himself to me through prayer, through scripture, through the, the community and the people of God. I gradually um, expanded my understanding of who he really was. And I think that's so important because it's, as we step into images like this, we need to recognize Jesus does not change. Jesus does not change. But wherever you're at in your life, he will appear differently to you. And if we're to be faithful to Jesus as he really is, We have to be open-handed and prepared to receive him however he reveals himself to us. And sometimes he's going to reveal himself to us in ways that are very comfortable for us, in language that we really understand and it resonates with us. But sometimes Jesus is also going to reveal himself to us in ways that really challenges our assumptions because he's inviting us to break open some of our definitions of who he is and what he looks like and what he does in order for us to dream a bigger idea of what he's really like. And to me, that's what Revelation 1 challenges me to so well, is not just to see Jesus as a friend or a lover or a counselor or a good example to follow, but that Jesus is the Lord over all. Several years ago, my father did a series on um, the book of Philippians, and he did one sermon specifically on Jesus as Lord and gave everyone in the church uh, this prayer to pray every morning about Jesus being Lord overall. all. And my mom said that for two months, she prayed that prayer every morning, and for two months, she hated it. She absolutely hated it. Because she realized, even at 50 years old, being a follower of Jesus her whole life, she was very quick to recognize Jesus as friend. But she was not so quick to accept him as Lord because of the connotations of what that meant. But she also found in this persistence to step in and to embrace him as the Lord over her life, and to give up that kind of control, she fell deeper in love within him. And I would just challenge you as we're going through this tonight to be thinking of how you see Jesus and are there ways that maybe he's challenging you to see him that might cost you something. They might cost you a little bit of the control or your little bit of right to self-determination or whatever it might be, but to trust that the more he reveals himself to you as he really is, the more you will fall in love with him and the more that that love will define you and overtake you, and so Jesus doesn't change, but this heavenly picture of Jesus from Romans, or sorry, from Revelation one, is a heavenly picture of the very same man that we encounter in the Gospels. Let's continue reading um, in Rome in Revelation one. John's response. So he has this image of Jesus, and he continues: "When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead." Consider that for a moment. Consider the image that he's just had of Jesus as he really is. I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. And so John has such a powerful revelation of what Jesus is like that it knocks him out as if he's dead. But this same Jesus, who's Lord overall, who has a sword coming out of his mouth, reaches down with his right hand, the hand of strength, and touches him. How often do we see Jesus doing that in the gospel? Right? Someone backs away. Someone's hiding. They're retreating from him. They're intimidated. And he says, don't be afraid. And he reaches out and he touches them. And that healing touch of Jesus almost brings John back to life. And then John attaches this image of Jesus to that of God Almighty when he says, I am the first and the last. In Greek, the Alpha and the Omega. In Hebrew, the Aleph and the Tav. The indication that I am the beginning and the end and everything in between. This Jesus reveals himself as God. And this Jesus continues on saying, I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever He holds the keys to life. He's conquered death, and not only that, but he offers us that same conquering mentality. That a world that was falling apart, a humanity that was bound by sin that could not connect with God, Jesus triumphed over that, brought us a new process of being in relationship with God and to give us life after death. And then he finally says to John, write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. I am who was and is and is to come. And if you're a student of scripture, perhaps that sounds familiar because when Moses encounters God in the burning bush and he says, what is your name? He says, I am Yahweh. A name that we don't really know how to translate that well but it sort of means I am being. I have always been, I am being currently and I will always be that God is self-referential, that God is consistent and always. And we tap into that eternal perspective of God in the present moment and allow him to stretch out our perspective from the beginning to the end of the story to find everything we are caught up into that. The Messiah is king over all the earth right now. If Jesus is the first and the last and he has always been, and it's just taken us a while to realize what he looks like and what he sounds like, then we recognize that as Messiah, as the Christ, he is the king over all the earth, even right now. And I think it's difficult because so often in our contemporary lives, we don't necessarily see this in the earthly perspective as a reality. Consider all of the things, and even in this series, even going back to three months ago, all of the things that we've witnessed within our city with the pulse shooting, all of the things we've witnessed around the world with the continuing persecution in Syria with the Zika virus, all of these things that are just going wrong and the cry of anguish that goes out from the places of woundedness. Consider in your own life over the past three months, have there been points of pain, or confusion, or despair, or disappointment, where the cry of your heart has been, God, where are you? Where are you? Because I don't see you right now. I don't feel you right now. I'm not that convinced that you're in control, that you're king. And I think it's so important that we allow that to become part of the process of us pressing into the Lord. I love that even last week in Steve's message, he talked about how God keeps himself partially hidden because he wants us to seek him and to find. He wants us to ask so that things will be given. That God wants us to actively pursue him. And I think the first readers of this letter felt that as well. On either side of them, persecution from Jews. And Greeks and pagans and the Roman culture surrounding them, they certainly felt that squeezing point. Where is Jesus right now? Because I'm not so convinced that he's king, that he's Lord overall. It kind of builds into that idea again that Steve was talking about last week with deism that God is real, but he's kind of distant. He's not particularly involved in the goings on in this world. But the beauty is that John encourages his churches and by extension encourages us to continue to persevere through testimony and expectation. Testimony and expectation. These things enable us to persevere. Testimony where we continue to tell ourselves the story of God in such a way that it interprets who we are. That it reminds us of what's really going on just below the surface of our reality. An expectation to know that God is going to finish what he started. That the universe has a trajectory. That history has direction to it. And someday God is going to finish what he started. And when we gather together as believers, as brothers and sisters, and we share those kinds of stories, and we remind ourselves of the ultimate story of God, it builds up within us that kind of perseverance. And we're starting to train ourselves to see Jesus as he really is. And then to let ourselves be transformed in his likeness. Paul says in Romans 5, consider pure joy when suffering comes against you. Because suffering produces perseverance. Because you start to ask the right questions. Who am I? Where is God? Those are the right questions for us to be asking. And perseverance produces what? Anybody go to Bible school? Character, very good. But not just any character. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces the character of Jesus within us. The more we persevere through the midst of suffering, the more we look like Jesus. Another way to say it is the things that were intended to be curses over us, that beat us down and break us apart, actually break us open to reveal Jesus in ever-increasing amounts. When it says glory to glory, that's what it's really talking about. And so suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces the character of Jesus within us. And character produces hope. Do you know that hope is not something that you start with? (laughs) Hope is somewhere that we end up. You know, our perseverance isn't, isn't necessarily by hope. It's by faith. But this hope does not disappoint Because the more that we begin to reveal the character of Jesus in ourselves in the midst of suffering, the more it builds within us a trust in the story of God, that he is bringing all things in culmination through Christ Jesus, and he's taking this entire universe somewhere. And so testimony and expectation build up within us that perseverance that produces the character of Christ and enables us to see a little bit more each day God at work in the world. And so this is an amazing image of who Jesus is. Now I want to talk about specifically why Jesus matters. Jesus is the only one worthy to reveal and enact God's plan to rescue the world. He's the only one that is worthy. Turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 5. This is one of my favorite images from uh, from this book. It feels so operatic. I imagine Wagner making a really incredible um, musical out of this. But it says this in Revelation 5. Then I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll. With writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Whenever you come across the number seven, think wholeness, completeness, perfection. So it's sealed with seven seals. Er, 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 er. <laughs> Just kidding. Just you're still with me. That's good. Wouldn't that be funny if it was sealed with seven seals? I don't know. That's very Dali-esque, maybe. But it's sealed with seven seals. We, you know you can have fun with scripture, right? That's okay. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? You see, now you're thinking that. You're like, who would do that? Who would break those seals? They didn't do anything. Clubs. Oh, Oh, Steve. Oh, focus, Bible, angel. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. And so, what is this scroll? This scroll is God's plan to rescue the world. God has has a plan, God has the blueprints, and they're all wrapped up in their completeness. But nobody fits the bill to be able to open it. Nobody meets the mark. See, as human beings, we try to rescue the world. We have that image of God part within us that we want to do something. We want to fix the world. We want to save the world. But then perhaps like John, we begin to weep because we realize that we're as much of the problem as we are the solution. And we feel that despair because is is no one worthy? Does no one match up to the task of opening up the plans of God so we might see how he desires to rescue the world? And so with John, we weep and weep because no one is found worthy. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. There's a lot of animals in this, bu- in this book, in this image. But God promised to redeem humanity from the very beginning. In Genesis 1 and 2, he said, I'm going to use humanity in order to rescue the world. And he even took a a, a small nation that came out of the miraculous birth in the story of Abraham and created a people, created a family for himself that he was going to use to redeem the world. But even Israel couldn't fit the bill. Israel couldn't step up to the task of being the way through which God was going to rescue the world. And so God needed someone to be the embodiment of Israel, to walk the path that he had called Israel to walk. And to take up the tasks he had assigned to Israel to be the, the vehicle through which he would rescue the world. And this is where we find the language of the anointed one. The son of David. The one who would come up out of Israel to be her embodiment. But to be the fulfillment of what God had said he was going to do right from the very beginning. So we see this language of the Lion of Judah. That's what we're thinking as the story of David, that a king was going to raise up. That was going to be even greater than David. It was going to come from his family. But where David fell and all of these heroes of the Old Testament fell, this person was going to be able to stand the test and the trials and come out the other side clean and do what God had promised that he was going to do. And so this part of the image goes on. The elder says, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is triumphed. And John turns and he looks, but he doesn't see a lion. He does not see a lion. And we find the divine punchline. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And so it's this divine punchline that John turns when he hears the lion, but he sees a lamb. And not just any lamb, a lamb who has been slain, a lamb who has been sacrificed, who's been cut open. He turns expecting triumph and power and is presented with tenderness and weakness. And it becomes the punchline for the entire story that we all thought we were getting a lion, but we actually got a lamb because this is how God planned to save the world the entire time. It was through the ultimate sacrifice of compassion, of God putting himself in our place, of God making himself weak, not only for us but for all of creation, and not choosing the ways of violence and power that God planned to save the world. And so here we find the central message of the book of Revelation. Hear the lion-sized victory, but gaze at the sacrificed lamb. That the, the victory that we got was the one that the lion deserves, but it didn't come through the ways of the lion. It came through the sacrificial lamb. And it goes on and and you can imagine this almost as this opera piece and the light hones in on this tiny little precious slain lamb that stands up and the music begins to build and the lamb walks over to the scroll and opens it up and then the entire orchestra kicks in and then there's like a double choir comes up from behind them and everyone begins to sing. It says this and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. The first song that all of the choir begins to sing is the one of recognizing what it is that this lamb has done on behalf of all people. And they continue on to talk about why the lamb is worthy. It says this, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. That's our vocation. That the Lamb came to open up the way, not just for us to be saved, but also to co-labor with God to advance his kingdom. That we have been called to be the priesthood, to be the mediators between God and the people because the Lamb is worthy, and they will reign on the earth. Giving us that imagery, again, from Genesis that we were called to rule and subdue the earth when we step into our proper creation. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times, 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And it continues, it keeps getting bigger. I hope you feel this operatic movement. Then I heard every creature In heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The song sang of what this Lamb has done on our behalf. these songs sing of why he is worthy because of it. And it gives us the grand scope of the story that it's not just us as human beings who worship. It's not just us and the angels. It's not just us and the angels and the four living creatures, but it's all of creation is gathered up and focus on the lamb who was slain because that's the way that God chose to save his world. And so because of that, we no longer ascribe those kinds of worthiness to earthly powers. We don't look to the structures of man around us to save us, because none of them have been worthy. Even in our best attempts, mankind still falls short of being able to rescue the world the way that God intends for it to be rescued. But we also find in these songs, because of what God has done through His Lamb, we are invited to co-labor, to participate in redemption, advancing the kingdom of our King. And you and I, as members of the citizens of this kingdom, as His priests, bring the entire world to His feet, to join in these very same songs that the angels are singing right now. And so who is Jesus? Why is Jesus worthy? And what's our response To Jesus. We are to pledge everything we are to the lion who is a lamb. One of the major questions that we've explored in this series is where do your allegiances lie? Where do you pledge allegiance? Where do you place your source, your security, your confidence? Do you choose the things of the world? Do you align yourself with the empires of the world? Or do you choose to step fully and completely into the kingdom? Or perhaps you're like me and you find yourself with one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the empire of the world, not willing to quite let go of the security we find there because the human language is a little too familiar for us. And what we've explored over and over again In this series, is why human beings try to fix things the way that we do, that we choose hierarchy and tribalism. We begin to divide ourselves up into little groups. We begin to rank ourselves according to some sort of earthly value system. We use prejudice and fear as our motivations, trying to control a world that cannot be grasped by human hands. And without realizing it, we're taking part in anti-kingdom ways. But it's our faithfulness, our willingness to be open-handed about everything. Not just being open-handed about what Jesus is really like, but open-handed with who we're called to be, and open-handed with what we've been called to do, that allows us to be realigned to Jesus' reign. And we step out of that place of prejudice and fear, and we move into places of compassion and forgiveness and grace, because these are the languages of the kingdom of God. You know, in this series, we've talked about politics. How do we choose to be present in the political um, atmosphere as it is today? We talked about creation care, that I believe that Christians should actually be at the forefront of championing the well-being of our planet Earth. We've talked about justice as a form of worship. We've talked about social justice specifically as having the eyes to see people the way that Jesus does and to step out and to love them into new revelation of who he is. We've talked about power. And being able to really take stock of the gifts and the passions and the privilege that God has given each one of us. And instead of leveraging it for the anti-kingdom ways of the empire, to begin to leverage it for his kingdom. We've talked on and on and on in this colony series about how do we realign our perspective to be firmly kingdom-minded. That we're kingdom people, that we're citizens of the colony of heaven. And do we root the way that we see and choose to be the world out of our heavenly citizenship? And so the final image that I want us to look at from Revelation is Revelation 21, very, very near the end. And it picks up on a lot of these images that we've already looked at. Jesus as he truly is, it picks up on the lamb, but it also is going to kind of introduce into that this idea of being the colony of God, the people of God. So this is Revelation chapter 21, we're going to look at verses 9 and 10 and then jump down to 22 and 20, through 27. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And in John's vision, he, he describes in great detail what the new Jerusalem looks like. And it's amazing because the measurements of the new Jerusalem are the exact same measurements of the Roman Empire in its day. That what God is doing is taking his kingdom and stretching it out over top of the kingdoms of the world. And I have said before that the empires of the world come and go, but the kingdom of God is forever. And so this new Jerusalem descends out of heaven and makes its home on this earth. And then he focuses inside the city itself, and he says this in verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. If you know about that, the old Jerusalem, The earthly Jerusalem, the temple, was the holy of holies. You come into the city and then you come into the temple and then you come into the holy place and if you're really lucky to be the high priest or maybe unlucky depending on where you're at in your sin life, you can enter into the holy of holies where God is supposed to dwell. But you see in this, this picture that we have of the new heavens and the new earth, the whole temple is redundant because the entire city is The entire kingdom becomes the temple, the place where God dwells. That God doesn't need a building anymore to say, look, there he is right there. But his light shines throughout his entire kingdom. So the city doesn't need a sun or a moon or stars because it's the glory, the presence of God that gives it light. And the lamb is its lamp, kind of echoing Hebrews, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his character. See, God has looked like Jesus always. There's never been a time in all of created time when God did not look like Jesus. But we're still only just unpacking what that really means that the Old Testament, the law and the prophets were the partial revelation, the hint of what God is like, but when God spoke and Jesus was the revelation, that's all we needed because that was everything, the best and most beautiful word that God had to say. And so when we gaze into the face of Jesus, when we gaze into the face of the lamb, we gaze into the face of God himself. John continues, the nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, in this new Jerusalem and the kingdom of God, the doors are never shut. The doors are never shut. Walls that used to be there for defense are now there for decoration. But the doors are never shut. The invitation is always there for us to come in out of the empires of the world, out of the places of desolation and destruction, and to enter into the kingdom of God where we have relationship with the Lamb. Even in this last image, John is challenging us. Do you want to be part of the kingdom of the Lamb because it is freely available to you? Or do you want to stay outside of the gates where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where there are the competitive systems of the world that seek to destroy and control human beings? And that's the invitation that we stand upon tonight. And so not not only do we pledge ourselves to the kingdom of God as our proper citizenship, but we find another kind of pledge in this image that we are pledged as the bride into a holy matrimony into a marriage of complete intimacy that the bride of the lamb is the colony it's the new jerusalem the place where you and i reside and so babylon has fallen away babylon is what human beings build when they leave it up to their own devices and babylon was the corruption of the old jerusalem but this new jerusalem comes that cannot be corrupted and stands as the bride of the Lamb. And God makes true on his promise that he speaks at Jesus' birth, Emmanuel, I'm with you. I'm with you. That is the promise upon which all of the other promises of God hang. And what you and I get to glimpse now, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, is what someday we will see in its fullness. And you and I get to taste the kingdom now, as the colony, as the ambassadors of Christ, as aliens in a foreign land, as we talked about even in the very beginning. But our colony, what we're doing here as the people of God, as his church, what our brothers and sisters in and around Orlando and around the world are doing and enacting is a foretaste and a down payment of what is the destiny of this entire universe. And you and I have been gifted with the ability to make that kingdom expand a little bit more day by day in us and through us. And so, what does it look like for Jesus, for the Lamb of God, to be Lord over your life? Are there places within you right now, are there parts of your personality, are there parts of your story that you're still holding back because you're afraid of what it means to give yourself over completely to Jesus? And tonight, can you trust him with everything that you are to let go, to let go of the empirical notions of value and worth, to let go of the world's understanding of power, And to give all of that firmly into the hands of Jesus and be surprised and delighted by who you meet in that process. I've taken this past month and really um, kind of reoriented a lot of things in my life. I realized for the first six months of this year, I had been giving away so much of who I was to other people, time that was supposed to be for me to refresh myself. And so I chose to step back a little bit And really do some inner searching. To ask the Lord to give me some language for the way that I operate. I think self-awareness, my goodness, is one of the greatest gifts that we have of the Holy Spirit. But to just pause and to ask Jesus, where are you not yet Lord? Where am I still operating out of old wounds, out of old patterns in my life where I'm very comfortable with you as friend? I'm very comfortable with you as a great example for me to follow, but I'm not so comfortable with you being my Lord. And to give up those places to him, to allow him to shine that light, the light of the new Jerusalem, into the dark places of my heart and to begin to see resurrection. You want to stand with me, please? When I die, I want my epitaph to say, On his best days, it was Jesus, all for Jesus. Either that or God better be real because I lost a lot of opportunity for sex, drugs, and rock and roll. (laughs) One of those two. If if I die before you do, y'all choose. But there's this, there's this worship song that meant so much to me for my entire life. And even when I decided to say yes to, to moving down to Orlando from Nashville and saying no to so many other potential futures to give myself over to him in fear and trembling, it was the words of this song that resonated with me so powerfully. It says, Jesus, all for Jesus. All I am and have and ever hope to be. For it's only in your will that I'm free these are the words that we're going to sing tonight and as we're singing this I want you to invite the Holy Spirit to move within your own heart and maybe these words don't ring so true well, I want you to sing them anyway as a testimony to faith and to allow God to begin to speak to you about places in your life that have yet to meet the light of Jesus as Lord so let's pray we're going to step into a time of worship Father God, we thank you so much for sending us Jesus, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Lord, that we were not capable of rescuing the world, so you came in flesh. You gave up everything that you are. You gave up everything you were. You gave up everything you will be in order to love us. You made yourself nothing for us. Lord, there is no possible way that we can pay you back for that, that you don't even ask for it. So, Heavenly Father, tonight as we worship the name of Jesus, I pray that that name would bring with it a power that shines light in darkness, that heals the sick that sets captives free that gives sight to blindness that makes the lame walk that provides a home for the widows and the orphans and the foreigners that everything we are as your people your children your city your bride is caught up and gathered up in the name of Jesus And that day by day we find ourselves more and more in love with him and his kingdom. So it's in his strong name that we pray and we worship you tonight. Amen.